Good morning, church. Today's reading is taken from the book of Second Samuel, chapter 15, verse 1 to 35. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What time are you what town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper. But there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone would ask a complaint or case would come to me and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take all of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. So he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Gashu in Haram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom went secret messengers, sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as we hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as chief of guests and went quiet innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ethophil, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength. And Absalom is following, kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. The king, his official, answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household with him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the place some distance away. All his men marched past him, along with all the Gerothites and Pelotites, 
and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai, the Gilitite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from homeland. You came only yesterday. And today, shall I make you wonder about with us? When I do not know where I am going, go back and take your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Itai replied to the king, As surely the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will be your servant. David said to Itai, Go ahead, march on. So Itai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole country wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kindron Valley and all the people moved on toward the desert. Zedok was there too. All the Levites who were with him were carrying the act the covenant of God. They sat down the act of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. The king said to Zedok, "Take the act, take the act of God back to the into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, He will bring me back and let me see it." and this dwelling place again. But he says, I'm not pleased with you. Then I'm, I'm not pleased with you. Then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zedok, the priest, Aren't you a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your son, Amas and Jonathan, son of Abiathar. You and Abiathar take your two sons with you. I will wait at the ports in the desert until your word comes from you to inform me. So Zedok and Abiathar took the act of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the mounds of olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. Now David has been told. Ahithotil is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithotil's counsel into foolishness. When David arrived at the summit, where people used to worship God. Ushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, 
I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrated Ahitotil's advice. Will the priest Zedok and Abiata be there with you? Tell them anything you hear in the king's palace. Jesus' two sons, Ahimaaz, son of Zedok, and Jonathan, son of Abiata, are there with them. Send them to me with anything to hear. So David sprang, Ushai, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Marco, very much indeed. There were some tricky names to pronounce there. Well done for what you did. Well, a warm welcome, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Um, This morning is the last in our present series in the life of David. And uh, next week we start a short series uh, called Major Messages in the Minor Prophets. And next Sunday morning we'll be looking at the prophet Michael. So uh, if you'll join us for that, that would be lovely. Uh, Now I'm going to ask for the Lord's help as we come to this passage, but won't you please keep the Bible open at the passage that Marco read for us, because I'm going to be referring to it. I think we might stand for prayer. Why don't don't we stand? (coughs) Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ our Saviour. You've promised to redeem us and to adopt us, to pardon our sins, to remake us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that the anvil on which you refashion us is the anvil of your word. We pray that it may be to us today both sweet to our taste and yet a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, that it might be a sword that breaks through the very depths of our being and yet at the same time a balm that assures us of your grace, your pardon and your power to transform our lives. And since you alone are able to speak to us truly and lastingly, we pray that your Spirit, by your Spirit, our Lord Jesus, would minister your word into our hearts, that we might sense him to be near and hear his voice calling us to himself. And we ask it together for his great name's sake. Amen. Please sit. Now last week we were talking about how uh, lasting change takes place in the life of the Christian. And we saw that confession is the key. And I think before we go any further, I think it's worth emphasising that confession of sin is not simply a one-time event that takes place at the beginning of our Christian life. Some people think that. That's not right. 
Rather, the spiritually healthy Christian will develop the habit of asking God to open our eyes so that we see our sin from God's point of view and will want to own our sin without blaming other people and then we trust God's promises of forgiveness and reconciliation. That is actually the entry point for lasting change in the Christian life. There can be no change without it. But it is only the entry point. Because there's another dynamic that God uses to change us and to mature us. And that, my dear friends, is suffering. Oh dear. Suffering is an extremely complex subject. It causes all kinds of problems for sincere Christian people. And so some people will ask, well, if God is sovereign, why doesn't he prevent suffering in the world? Or, if God is good, why does he allow good people to suffer? Now, those are important questions. They demand serious answers. But suffering is a huge subject. We can't possibly cover, cover every single aspect in one study this morning. So this morning, we're only covering a fairly small piece of the territory. But what an important piece it is. Because at the beginning of our series, we saw that the New Testament sees David, King David, as the most important human ancestor in Jesus' family tree. And this morning, what I want to do is see what we can learn about suffering from the life of King David. And then at the very end, I want to show you how that anticipates the suffering of the Lord Jesus. So just three things to notice this morning. Number one, First, we're going to consider the cause of suffering. Suffering has a cause. It's not sort of a random experience that comes to us out of thin air. It has a cause. Second, I want us to see the power of suffering. And specifically, that the difference that suffering made to David's character. And then lastly, I want to say something about the end of suffering. Because for every Christian, suffering has a definite end point. And uh, there's something as stunning, I think, as it is surprising in David's experience, which shows us when and how suffering ends. So, let's dive in. Number one, the cause of suffering. Now, at this point, there's a major shadow hanging over David's life. Uh, Last week, we saw that following David's confession, that God forgave the guilt of his sin. You remember that? The sin of his adultery with Bathsheba, the sin of the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. However, God also said that although David's guilt had been taken away, 
there would be consequences. Specifically, David's dynasty, his family, would continue to be contaminated by bloodshed and sexual misconduct. And that's already begun to be fulfilled in the lives of three of David's children. And I think a little bit of orientation here will be helpful for you. Turn back to chapter 13. In chapter 13, David's son, Amnon, has raped Tamar. Tamar was the full sister of Absalom. So if you turn back to chapter 13 and verse 21, you'll find there the verse which describes the atmosphere in David's family after Tamar was raped. 2 Samuel 13, verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So, have you got the picture? David is angry, but notice crucially that he fails to discipline Amnon, And the result is that Absalom turns into a human time bomb, just waiting to get his revenge. And shortly afterwards, Absalom murders his brother Amnon, and then he goes into hiding. So, friends, a major theme in these middle chapters of 2 Samuel is that David's own behaviour is being repeated in the next generation. Firstly, in the sexual immorality of his eldest son, Amnon, and then in the treachery and murder committed by his third son, Absalom. After three years in exile, Absalom is allowed to come back to Jerusalem, and the relationship between David and his son appears to be heading back to normal. But, the careful reader is going to be feeling pretty uneasy about Absalom. And the classic warning sign comes in the way that Absalom is described in chapter 14 and verse 25. Have a look at that. Chapter 14, verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Now, friends, we've already discovered, haven't we, in 1 and 2 Samuel, that the people who look impressive are usually the most dangerous. So do you remember that Saul was a head taller than all the other men of Israel? And so was David's brother, Eliab. But both men were a total disaster in their spiritual lives. And here, Absalom is described as being better looking than both of them. So, if we're reading this carefully... We're expecting trouble. 
And here in chapter 15, our passage this morning, our misgivings are confirmed as we're told how Absalom sets about undermining David's rule. Just look again, chapter 15, verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. And what was the result? Verse 6. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king for justice and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel which simply means that he deceived them. How did he do that? Well, he described a problem that didn't exist. The king is too busy to hear about your problems. That wasn't true. And then he offered himself as the solution. If only I were appointed judge in the land. Perhaps Absalom is the patron saint of politicians. I don't know. After four years of behaving in this way, slowly undermining David's position, building his own reputation, he makes his boldest move, verse 7, by asking his father's permission to go to Hebron, apparently to fulfil a vow. Now Hebron had massive strategic significance because it was, of course, the place where David first had himself anointed as king. So Absalom decamps, if you like, to the place where all of David's supporters are. He goes with a large following, And so, verse 12, the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So everything is in place for Absalom to launch his coup. There are two things to notice, I think, in these middle chapters of the book. Firstly, they're showing us how sin multiplies. Two weeks ago we saw that the Bathsheba episode was the the culmination, actually, of a very long period during which David had been drifting further and further away from God. And the further he drifted, the easier it was for David to sin. He'd become hardened to the spiritual implications of his own behaviour. But you see, Once he let sin take hold in his life, he discovered he couldn't actually control the consequences. And my dear friends, in 3,000 years, absolutely nothing has changed. That is precisely 
how sin spreads in our culture today. We allow a sinful practice to take hold in our lives and pretty soon the consequences threaten to turn our entire lives upside down. Can I say, therefore, that there is a huge warning here to all parents and to anyone in any position of responsibility? You see, if we're casual about sin, either in our own lives or in the lives of our children whilst they're young, we may find that later on their lives begin to fall apart and we are powerless to do anything about it. That's the first thing. But secondly, there's a rather interesting paradox here. Because if we have time to look at all of the information we're given about Absalom in these chapters, we would see that he is a man who lives his life without any reference to God whatsoever. But surprisingly, everything that he does, however much suffering it causes, is always under God's control. So although Absalom is accountable for his behaviour before God, he's also the means which God uses to work out his purposes in David's life. And because of this, David is now on the receiving end of a tidal wave of deceit and immorality that he himself started. So that's the first thing this morning, the cause of suffering. Let's move on now and consider secondly the power of suffering. Now in the passage that uh, Marco read for us, we saw that Absalom's rebellion forces David and his whole household to flee from Jerusalem. And uh, in the next section there are two encounters that show us how suffering has changed David. So firstly, David has a different attitude to other people. Do you remember in the episode of his adultery with Bathsheba, we saw that David was more than happy to use his power for his own selfish gratification. So he thought absolutely nothing of sending messages to to bring Bathsheba to his bedroom and he even sent poor Uriah back to the battlefield carrying his own death warrant. So you see, David had been in the habit of using people. But now, as he leaves Jerusalem, David sees a foreign mercenary called Ittai. And what he says to him, I think, is very revealing. Verse 20, chapter 15, verse 20. You came only yesterday, David says, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I don't know where I'm going. Go back and take your countrymen. Make kindness and faithfulness be with you. So can you see that where before David had been willing to use others to suit his own purposes, now he's become concerned and caring. David has changed. 
And I want you to notice that although God has allowed this period of suffering and discipline in David's life, he hasn't neglected David. So just listen to Ittai's response in verse 21. He says, As surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. Now I ask you to think, isn't that the God we serve? You see, although David is under God's discipline, God provides David with a loyal friend in his darkest hour. But you see, David needed a new attitude to other people in order to see that. You see, the old David, I think, might never have noticed Ittai, still less stopped to talk to him. And friends, I wonder if sometimes we aren't a bit like that. So that we don't always see the faithful friends that God has provided for our encouragement and for our strength, reminding us that though he actually might be disciplining us, he hasn't left us. So because of his suffering, David has a different attitude to other people. But secondly, David has a different attitude to God. Now, if you've been with us in the series, you'll remember that when David was made king, he wanted to bring the ark up to Jerusalem. He was in such a rush to have a big parade to show the people that God was on his side that he neglected God's instructions for moving the ark. Do you remember that? And Uzzah perished, and David was angry, because he thought God was on his payroll. Now in our passage this morning, Sadoc and the priests have brought the ark with David out of Jerusalem. Perhaps they thought that might buy David some political leverage with the people. We've got the ark, so God must be on our side. And the old David might well have gone along with that, seeing the ark as something that he could use. But look at how David responds in verse 25. Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. So you see, any thought of using the ark in a manipulative way has completely vanished from David's thinking. Incidentally, just as an aside, uh, the little phrase in verse 26, I am ready, is, is usually translated as here I am. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, you find that phrase on the lips of people who are submitting to the will of God under very testing and difficult circumstances. So, for example, when God calls Abraham and tells him to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham responds, Here I am. Genesis 22 verse 1. Or, 
when uh, God speaks to Moses at the burning bush and tells him to go and rescue Israel from captivity, big job, Moses says to God, here I am. Exodus 3 verse 4. Or when God appears to Isaiah and tells him to go to preach to the people of Israel for 50 years, even though no one is going to listen to him, pretty discouraging ministry, Isaiah says, here I am. Isaiah 6 verse 8. All three men are called by God to a difficult task. And all three are willing to obey without knowing how things are going to turn out. And so here, on the lips of David, that little phrase I think is a clue that David has submitted to the Lord's discipline. He's not resisting it. He's not complaining about it. He simply says, let the Lord do to me whatever seems good to him. Seems strange to us, doesn't it, this? But the point I want us to take away is that suffering has had a positive effect on David's character. A few years ago, we were privileged to have an American pastor called Paul Tripp come and speak to a number of us at a lunchtime meeting for businessmen. Some of us have just finished his marriage course and we'll be talking more about that at the end of the service. Shortly before his visit, his daughter was hit by a car and uh, she was crushed against a wall and for a while it was touch and go as to whether she might live or die. And in that moment, her life and the lives of her parents were quite literally turned upside down and the suffering they went through was intense. But Paul Tripp says that he came to a deeper understanding of the way that suffering works. And he recorded his thoughts on his blog. This is what he wrote. Listen to this. Quote, Suffering is a kidnapper that comes into our lives, blindfolds us, and takes us to where we don't want to be. But suffering is not just a kidnapper, it is also a teacher. It points you to the fact that there is very little you can actually control. It instructs you as to where reliable hope and sturdy comfort can be found. Like a patient teacher with a resistant student, Suffering pries open your hands and asks you to let go of your life. Suffering invites you to find security, rest, hope and comfort in another. And in so doing, assaults the irrationality of personal sovereignty that is the delusion of every human being. In that way, suffering is not just a kidnapper, not just a teacher, it is also a liberator. Suffering frees us to experience a deeper comfort and hope than we ever had before.
End quote. I don't think I've read anything that does a better job of describing the positive effect of suffering in our lives. Before we move on, uh, I want you to notice that David wasn't passive in this period of suffering. He wasn't just wringing his hands and saying, well, this is terrible. I better just sit tight and uh, ride out the storm until the good life returns. No, being submissive to the Lord's discipline does not mean doing nothing. Quite the opposite. Look at verse 31. Now David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now who was this man? Well, if you glance ahead to chapter 16 and verse 23, we're told there Now, in those days, the advice of Ahithophel was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. So, Ahithophel was David's most senior and trusted advisor. And there's actually some evidence that he was Bathsheba's grandfather. So this was probably the hardest and the bitterest blow of all for David. But how does David react? End of verse 31. So David prayed, O Lord, turn Ahithophel's advice into foolishness. So can you see that instead of being utterly paralysed by the pain of his misfortune, which was considerable, David goes to God as his refuge. And God provides an immediate and very practical answer to David's prayer. It's there in verse 32. When David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him. Now as we heard in the reading, David commissions Hushai to become a sort of secret agent in Absalom's court. And that proves to be crucial for David's eventual victory. So, suffering, however painful, has had a very positive effect on David. And if we're honest, we weren't expecting that. But instead of being bitter, David has a greater concern for other people. And instead of turning his back on God and trying to sort things out in his own strength, he trusts God in a deeper way. And as we've seen, he gets an immediate answer. You see, friends, that is the transformative power of suffering. Well, lastly this morning, I want to say something about the end of suffering. I said at the beginning that people have got lots of very legitimate questions about suffering. And God willing, we'll come and look at some of those in a future series. But there is one idea that people have about God and suffering that is totally false. And that is the idea that God himself knows nothing about it. They say God knows nothing about suffering, so that's one reason, one more reason, why he shouldn't allow his people to go through it. Well there's something in this passage that knocks that argument right on the head once and for all. The verse that opens it up for us is verse 30. 
Just look at verse 30, will you? But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. Now the image there is of a funeral procession. And friends, this side of the cross, it points us forward to another king from David's line, who lived and died nearly a thousand years later, Because, you see, like David, Jesus left Jerusalem with a band of frightened followers. Like David, Jesus crossed the same Kidron Valley and climbed the same Mount of Olives. And like David, Jesus was betrayed by a member of his inner circle. And like David... Jesus surrendered himself to the will of God. But having said that, that's where the similarities end. Because why was David following that route? And why was he weeping? Because of his own sin. It was his sin that led directly to all of the suffering that he and his entire household were experiencing. But if we ask the question, why did Jesus follow that route? The answer is not because of his sin, but because of our sin. The sin of the entire human race. And whilst the rebellion against David was eventually crushed and David was able to return to Jerusalem and to rule in peace, Jesus returned from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem to face a trial and to endure the agony of Calvary's cross. So can you see that it is totally wrong to suggest that God knows nothing of suffering himself? He actually knows far more about it than any of us ever will. And yet, and yet, the message for all sufferers everywhere is that the cross is not the end. Because Jesus rose from the grave and he's alive in heaven today. And you see, to the early church, it was the resurrection of Jesus that strengthened them to see beyond their suffering to the world that is coming where there will be no more suffering, no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. And my dear brothers and sisters, that is our hope as well. You see, we follow in the footsteps of a suffering saviour, which means that suffering is an unavoidable part of the Christian life. We live in a Christ-rejecting world. All of that suffering is hard, Sometimes the pain is almost unbearable, but all of it is under the control of our loving Heavenly Father, who loves us far more than any of us can fully understand this side of glory. And one day for the Christian, suffering 
will end. And we will be with Jesus in the new creation. And not only will we be with him, but we will be like him. And on that day, and not until that day, we will understand why the suffering was necessary. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sin that is possible for all who trust in the death of Jesus. But we also thank you for the warning that whilst our sin can be forgiven, it often has painful consequences for ourselves and for our loved ones. And yet even this is always under your sovereign control. Please help us to submit to these seasons of discipline that you allow into our lives, that we might be shaped and moulded more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus, and might lift our gaze from the horizons of this world to the eternal joy that you've prepared for us in heaven. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.